Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Rachel. And I'm Andrew. And we are Picture the Scene podcast, a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. We bring you a new episode on a weekly basis, with Andrew mainly focusing on those lesser-known crimes from the UK and Ireland, and me taking on some of the bigger, more well-known cases from time to time. As we are a true crime podcast, we must warn you that listener caution is always advised. If you happen to like what you hear, then please do spread the word to your friends and family about us. Also, please follow us on whatever social media platforms you prefer. And wherever you listen, if you have the capability, then why not give us a rating and review as well? These reviews and ratings mean so much to us because not only do we love hearing from our wonderful listeners, but it encourages other listeners to go find us and give us a try. So really thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And if you like us that much, so you want to support us, you can do so for less than the cost of a small Americano on Patreon. With our signups starting as low as £1, we release bonus content every month, and we also take recommendations from our fabulous Patreon subscribers. Your support for our little pod really does mean the world to us too, so thank you to each and every one of you. Yes, thank you everyone. And if you really hate us, then subscribe to us, and I'll happily sit there and listen to you telling me how much you don't like us with a smile. Wow. I mean, I'm not sure that I could take that, but I'll let I'll let you do those those ones then, Andrew. Okay. Sure. Why not? <laughs> and finally, for now, the links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or by visiting patreon.com forward slash scene pod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. Phew, right, that's the terms and conditions over. Um, Andrew, before we get into it today, how have you been since we last recorded? I have been more sparkly than a bottle of cheap wine. Wow, there you go. You heard it here first, guys. Andrew's in the best mood ever. I am in an awesome mood. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. Okay, well, um, moving swiftly on, are you ready for some true crime? I'm looking forward to it. Oh, gosh, he really is in a good mood. He rarely says he's looking forward to it when I'm presented. No comment. Okay. People, no know comment. That, pe- people know that's not true. <laughs> okay. Well, today we'll be taking you to the coastal town of Deal in Kent and all the way back to the 6th of May in 1999 and to a crime that shocked an entire community to its core for more than 20 years. The weather was unseasonably cool for early May, with temperatures reaching highs of just 14 degrees Celsius, or 57.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Winds were high and rain was heavy. It's just not the type of weather you'd be hoping for on the southeast coast of England in late spring, is it? No, it's not, no. And in Deal, Kent, lived 34-year-old nurse and devoted mother, Debbie Griggs, her fisherman and self-employed husband, 37-year-old Andrew, and their three children, six-year-old Jeremy, four-year-old Jake, and 18-month-old Luke, in a three-bedroom dormer bungalow on Walmer Street. What's a dormer bungalow? Is it a bungalow that's got more than one floor? And if it is, then it's not really a bungalow, is it? (laughs) So a dormer bungalow, it's a really good question. And the only reason I know is because I grew up in a bungalow and my friends grew up in a dormer bungalow, and I was always like, why does your bungalow have stairs? Basically, it's when, like, officially a second floor has been added, but in the roof of the bungalow. So it's not, like, they've not built on top of the house to make, like, an official floor. The dormer is just, like, 
windows put into the side of the roof and the roof was made like higher for like higher ceilings does that make sense it makes sense it's just a fake bungalow basically yeah like a phony a phony bungalow yeah um did you ever watch family guy um yeah i've I've seen it before i recall an episode where somebody was like hey he's a phony hey phony sorry every time i hear the word phony i'm like family guy okay fair enough you can delete that bit no i'll leave it Andrew and Debbie have been married for nine years, following a very brief relationship. And shortly after they were married, they had become joint owners of the 30-year-old Griggs family-run freezer business, Griggs Freezer Center, which was based in their local high street. I worry about um, you mentioning in a freezer center. Does that mean there's going to be bodies inside the freezer at some point? Do you know what? Put a pin in that. Because okay. I'm like, I'm just going to say, I'm not sure, but at the end, I'm going to ask you to unpin that and we'll we'll explore it. Okay. okay. Yep. Despite Debbie being a qualified nurse, she'd not returned to full-time work since her son Jeremy was born six years earlier. And instead, she would occupy the majority of her time juggling a very busy home life with her three children and, where possible, working part-time in the freezer business too. Debbie had struggled with postnatal depression after her first two sons were born, but by the time baby Luke was here, she'd come off the medication and and had adjusted well to life with three children under five. Wow. Three children under five. That's some some going, isn't it? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm panicking about two children under seven. Debbie was also nearly five months pregnant with baby number four in May 99. And you'd imagine her and husband, Andrew, would be excited to welcome another baby into their home. However, things were definitely not happy within the Grigg family. Just two months earlier, in March 99, Andrew had actually moved out of the family home following a couple of heated altercations with his wife, which led him to obtaining a non-molestation or anti-harassment order against her. Okay. I I found that strange, like, you know... From from the initial like research that I did on the case, I was like, "Oh wow, okay, fair enough. They've had some altercations, and you know, obviously, you always think the worst of of husbands. But yeah, the the husband had actually gone gone in for the the orders against his wife on this occasion. I'm intrigued. Yeah, I mean, I won't really touch on it much more, but I will let you know what happened. Uh, it, it's not not in the story today but uh yeah she'd actually bit him uh twice uh, on two separate occasions but he had goaded her and the reason why i can say he'd goaded her was because it was caught on the shop cctv that the police had obviously reviewed at the time that he was um seeking the the anti-harassment orders um so so yeah like it's one of those isn't it six of one half a dozen of the other um where you're looking at a case and thinking yeah you absolutely shouldn't have bit him but like he was also taunting you to the point where you know yeah you're gonna bite someone (laughs) no i shouldn't joke you should never bite someone it's a bit of a strange um method of attack as well isn't it it is, you know, and I do think some people are just biters. Yeah, fair enough. Like, do you remember 
in uh, football when um, Luis Suarez just bit that guy's ear. Yeah. Like, you know, and yeah, you, you see, um, I'm pretty sure somebody got bit during a wrestling match as well, like a couple of years ago. WWE, like, fully bit, or it might have been a boxing match recently. Yeah, I don't forgive me wrestling because that's all fake, isn't it? But um... Oh, God, don't let Lee hear you say that. We had a full-blown argument once upon a time because I said they were great actors. Okay. Anyway, where were we? No idea. <laughs> oh, he got the molestation order. Yeah, I got it. He had actually commenced divorce proceedings at this time and both had sought advice from lawyers. However, within a fortnight of their separation, the pair had had some time to cool off and ended up reconciling with the help of one of their close family friends. And Sir Andrew had actually returned to the family home on Walmer Street and almost immediately began settling back into family life in late March. Back to the 6th of May, and despite the rotten weather for the time of year, Debbie was due to meet friends at the zoo with her eldest son, Jeremy, along with a trip to mother and toddler group with with sons Jake and Luke. And shortly after that, I'd also made plans to take the children to a birthday party. However, she'd failed to show up at the zoo, to the class, or to the party which was very uncharacteristic of her. And this immediately rang alarm bells amongst her friends. Had she been involved in an accident? Was she poorly sick and unable to get medical attention? What on earth could have happened to result in her not contacting anyone or just not turning up to see her friends? And you got you got to think, like, you know your friends and your family inside out, don't you, and their behaviour. And you've got those friends that are always a bit scatty and forget but then you got those friends that are like on the ball all the time, like diaries, plans, you know, and all of that. And and from what I read about Debbie, she was definitely one of those people, you know. I mean, to have three plans in a day for three of her children would have would have required like meticulous, like, you know, planning, lunch on the go and all of that that's kind of stuff. So Yeah, I was just yeah. thinking, I was just thinking she there was a lot planned and had she bitten off more than she could chew. She had lots of plans, but like you say, if you make that many plans, you, you normally stick to them. It's when you've got an occasional thing, you probably think, I can't be bothered, don't you? Yeah, I'd 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 be wholly inclined to agree with that. Yeah, one plan in the middle of the day is easier to cancel than three back-to-back. After several attempts were made to contact her at home, her friends managed to get in touch with her husband, Andrew, at work. He then made the decision to call the police. It was time to tell them that Debbie had, in fact, stormed out the house the night before at around 11pm, taking £250 in cash and the family car, a white Peugeot 309 saloon, and she had not been seen or heard from since. You know what I always find? I know it does happen, Rachel, so don't tell me that it does happen. I know it does, but whenever you hear stories, like crime stories, People don't just get up and disappear, when especially when they've got families. And I mean, they do, but when you've got like four kids and however many under five and whatnot, and that sort of thing, you don't just get up and disappear without telling a soul, do you? No, I think I think I think you might fantasize about it. Like, yeah. Let's be honest, but um, the reality of doing such a thing, you're absolutely yeah. right. Like it's just not not realistic. Initially, Andrew had not been concerned about Debbie's departure. Having cited to police officers who turned upon the evening of the 6th to investigate his wife's disappearance, 
that she'd left the family home on multiple occasions and had always returned to her boys within 24 hours. Whilst he believed this occasion would be no different, he felt he needed to call police due to her friends and family being so concerned about the welfare. So I kind of think he was almost like goaded into calling the police um, and, and definitely not doing so because, you know, he cared massively about them finding his wife, but more like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I've been told I should. So here I am calling you. The skeptic, the skeptic inside me, Rachel, he's also telling me that he might be doing it just so he doesn't look suspicious by not doing it. Well, yes, interesting point you're making there, Andrew. Uh, So when the police turned up, they were met with an extremely cool, calm and patient individual. Not the kind of behaviour you'd expect from a husband, whose wife had gone missing and he'd been left to manage the house, the children and his business for the last 24 hours. Something just wasn't sitting right. And like, I totally get that. If, If you've got all of those things to juggle, Bearing in mind, Debbie was pretty much 1999, I think it's acceptable to say, a stay-at-home mum. She'd have sorted the kids' lunches, getting them to school, playgroup, like wherever they needed to get going to. She, We're talking here about a man who's got to step in, uh, away, you know, take himself away from the, the family business. I mean, he's in work at some point during that day because that's where her friends managed to contact him, but you'd be up in the air, wouldn't you? Frantic, stressed, you know. And I know there's no right or wrong way to behave when you're faced with a crisis, but, yeah, I don't don't know. Well, yeah, you think about it. When you're in a relationship and it's a long-term one, quite often, I mean, it could be a stay-at-home parent with the kids, so it could be someone who goes to work. But quite often, there's chunks of that other person's life, like when that the other person just accepts happens, and they don't really know the ins and outs and the effort that the person has to put in. It might be someone, it might be someone who has a really stressful job, but they come home to their their partner and leave. They leave it at work, or it could be someone who's got several kids who their partner comes home and. Everything's just done, if you know what I mean. The kids yeah. are being fed, they're ready for bed, and the, the other person doesn't see the effort that goes in all day. It could, it could be many things. But So if he's suddenly just had to drop in and at short notice, because she's just walked out apparently with money in the car, and do what she does, then he's likely not to know what to do or what's planned. Exactly. Yeah, thrown into a bit of disarray, hey? Yeah. As the hours turned into days and the days turned into weeks without Debbie making contact with her young boys, her parents, nor her sister, whom she spoke to regularly, or keeping doctor's appointments, uh, remember she is five months pregnant and her pregnancy had been classified as high risk due to complications with carrying and delivering her previous three boys. Oh, I forgot she was pregnant, yeah. Yeah, yeah, pregnant with the fourth child. So as you might have expected by now, her husband, Andrew, was an initial suspect in the police investigation into her disappearance. Concerns were growing fast for Debbie's health too, given she'd not taken her asthma medication with her when she'd left home. But Andrew had assured police she had taken her purse, which contained her ID card, so she could at least get her repeat prescription. Within a week of reporting her missing, 
Her car was discovered just a 15-minute walk away from the family home, in a residential area called Shrubbery Road. The car was unlocked at the time of discovery, and to the disbelief of the police, it was immaculately clean both inside and out, not even a fingerprint from Debbie, Andrew, or the children in sight. Again, that's not suspicious, is it? Unless not suspicious? She, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's me being <laughs> ironic. It's um, it's definitely suspicious. Unless it's near a well-known suicide spot, then the car just being dumped 15 minutes away is highly suspicious, isn't it? And even more yeah, so. Yeah, with, not a, with not a fingerprint. I know. How are you going to... three kids. That's That takes some effort, doesn't it? Yeah, how do you keep their grubby mitts off of a car? I know you when you've got that many kids, you you're lucky if you find all the bits of food that get stuck everywhere, <laughs> let alone getting rid of all the fingerprints. Oh yeah. Tragedy strikes when you have to remove their car seats for whatever reason. You're like, oh God, this is mine. After extensive examination, however, a smear of blood belonging to Ben Debbie was located in the boots. This coupled with the fact that the boot lining was also missing aroused suspicions that some harm may have come to Debbie. So police promptly scoured land and sea in search for the clues leading to her whereabouts. Detectives spent a lot of time over the next couple of months interviewing close friends and family, and it soon confirmed that not all was happy in the couple's marriage. In the original 999 call, and in subsequent interviews, Andrew had claimed Debbie was still suffering from postnatal depression, which had been exacerbated by the latest pregnancy. But friends and relatives had confirmed with police that she'd actually been off medication and managing really well for the last three years. Instead, they alerted the police to comments Debbie had made recently about her husband and a suspected affair with a young girl who was just aged 15 at the time of her disappearance. Oh, well, that's a bit of a U-turn, isn't it? Like, yeah. Do you know what? Do you know what? The story was wild to review. Like, especially this particular part of it. And again, not something I fully touch on, but we can discuss later is, you know, the, yeah, this, this girl like was really pivotal in the case, but. Remind me how old he is again? 37. Okay. So that's 22 years. That's. Hmm. Yep. And he has like sons of his own, like, you know, not, not to say that like, pedophiles have like you know restrictions or like you know they're able to like temper what they do but yeah like she's a child he has he has children of his own it's just maddening really well we don't know what they can do do that's Mm. that's that's a problem i think sometimes uh is uh because we and i say we i mean everyone including me and you Sometimes we just jump to con- conclusions. We don't know how these people take, do we? Which is not a good thing, because if you don't know how they take, then it's harder to actually, um, that's the word I'm looking for, it's harder to actually understand and, and counteract the horrible thing. Comprehend. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, predict, like, if you if, if we fully understood, we fully understood how they worked, then there could be some more preventative measures, couldn't there? Yeah, uh, yeah, and and triggers that might alert people to early behaviour, early signs. Yes, yes. But Um, but just as an aside, dating a 15-year-old when you're 37 is definitely a sign. (laughs) Yes. 
And married. Yes. So just to clarify, like, you know, I said a suspected affair. Debbie had a feeling that Andrew was involved in a sexual relationship with the child and that he was grooming her and seeing her up to five times a week. He would also flirt openly with her in front of his wife. Wow. You know, and so hopefully like that more brings to to like frame why I was saying that he goaded his wife into her reactions for like biting him because if he's openly flirting with 15-year-olds and behaving in this manner and and being so inappropriate with children, like, you know, can can you now empathize with a woman for getting so fucking mad at her husband? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, yeah. At the time, Andrew confirmed that the pair were just friends and that his wife was mad for thinking anything untoward was going on. But Debbie was convinced otherwise and had thankfully shared her concerns with her close friends. And like nowadays, we know this as gaslighting, right? But, you know, from from what I read, um, certainly from the transcripts in court and from the sentencing remarks, he made her like feel a lot of her thoughts were crazy and that she was insane for like thinking a certain way. But also he's trying to convince his wife like he's just friends with a 15 year old. Like I have um, nieces and nephews on my wife's side who are around that age, like 14, 15. And I do talk to them, but it's very short and very stunted because it's just two totally different generations, isn't it? Like after after I ask how they are or what they want for Christmas or something like that, it's not <laughs> um, it's like or how they're doing in school, you know that type of thing. You can't really how are you supposed to strike up a a friendship with such a big age gap for when right. someone when someone's a child anyway? Obviously, you can be two adults could have that gap and still be friends because it's a different thing, isn't it? But um, but yeah. No, you're completely right. Um, like there's such a big age gap and divide between them that you'd, yeah, you'd, you would be massively concerned about like a friendship striking up because they wouldn't share like similarities with like hobbies and things like that. Just a bit crazy. Yeah. At this point, deep into the investigation, police had already noticed Andrew's behavior was growing increasingly concerning following the disappearance of what, of his wife. Over time, they discovered he'd set up a sole business account and removed her as co-signatory just days after she went missing. And in the months following the 6th of May, he'd actually sold the couple's home despite having no idea of his wife's whereabouts and whether or not she may well return to the family home at some point in the future. And again, I know that there's no like rule book on how to behave or engage when something crazy happens in your family, but when someone goes missing... Surely the last thing you do is move move out the house because, you know, if they've had a moment where they forget who they are, that you know, they want to escape it all, if they ever want to come back, like you need to be there, don't you? And and be waiting for them. Especially after such a short space of time. Sounds like with a bank account and moving, it sounds like he's already certain that she he knows she won't come back, so he's just getting on with life. A level of premeditation, absolutely. Yeah. Just just behaviour that bit by bit all adds up just isn't right. 
Her car keys and purse, along with other personal belongings that he had claimed she'd taken with her when she left the family home, were also later discovered in the bottom of Luke's baby changing bag. And the story about the night she went missing had several inconsistencies to it. But despite the best efforts of the police to locate Debbie or uncover what had happened to her, two years later in 2001, the Crown Prosecution Service came to the conclusion that the evidence submitted to them offered no realistic prospect of conviction for Andrew Griggs. And with that, the investigation into Debbie's whereabouts was closed and the case went cold. Andrew was a free man. So that sounds to me like they're basically think saying we're pretty certain he did it, we just can't prove it. So okay. How often how often do you hear that where the CPS are like, No, I get what you're saying, but we do not have a case here for court. And it, yeah. it must be so frustrating for the officers because they've spent two years gathering evidence. Evidence that clearly maps out that this man is not telling the truth. And yet there's not enough evidence to say that he's lying. And the thing is as well, right? I imagine the police force is like most other businesses. It's a results business, isn't it? So like the police officers wouldn't spend two years looking into something if they weren't fairly certain and knew what the outcome was. A hundred percent. No, I fully agree with you. And and like the other thing as well is, and I get it, the CPS are there to protect the police from, you know, something going to court that really shouldn't be in court because, you know, it's gonna get dismissed quite easily or um, you know, you've not got a good chance of winning. Um, but they're also there, obviously, to protect the public because, you know, they need to make sure that the evidence that's gathered is factual and and has been obtained legally and things like that. So, you know, no shame thrown on the CPS at all. But it must be really difficult for police officers to stomach um, watching a case fall apart and a man walk free that they are convinced is involved in some way, shape or form. And and this place, Steel in Kent, it's, you know, a really small, close-knit community. And Debbie was known locally by many people and loved as well. And, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were so many people that came forward, you know, to... To say it was so unusual for Debbie to have up sticks and left her three boys, like she was such a family woman. It's not just that. She, if she was five months pregnant when she disappeared, and we're talking two years later, that you in a Western country, it's hard, it's almost impossible to give birth, look after a child without that child having to come in and be recorded somewhere with authorities. I'm pretty sure it's illegal not to um not to register your child with um within like within a certain amount of time after the birth um with, with a medical authority as well because they need to be checked over and you know make sure that ev- everything's okay so so yeah you're right there's just it's so strange that not only was she 5 months pregnant but she was high risk because of complications with her previous pregnancy. She's asthmatic. You know, there was never any record of her requesting repeat prescriptions for her asthma medication, which, you know, is, it can kill. Asthma can can absolutely kill. Um, and, yeah, coupled with the fact that you wouldn't just up sticks and leave your boys, would you? Well, yeah, but it's not just... I mean, forget about it being illegal for a moment. 
like just giving birth. And if you manage to give birth, then you've got the stuff like the like the umbilical cord, the checkups, the shots, like just everything. Like you can't live in a Western society and do what you need to do to ensure that child doesn't die, basically. No, absolutely. Without coming into some sort of somewhere where it'll be recorded, and if it if that if that child can't be brought up in some sort of system, then there's steps and procedures in place where they go. Hang on, why can't we find this child? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And also, like the glaringly obvious one, how the hell did she even take the car? If the keys are in her nappy bag that's been left at home. Oh, do you know what? I didn't even think about that. But yeah, you're right. If the, if the keys are at home and the car's only 15 minutes away, then yes, I didn't even, do you know what? I Mad. didn't even, I didn't even trigger in my head. But yeah, she, she blatantly didn't take the car. No, nothing, nothing that the police know is true, really, that's come yeah. from Andrew anyway at this stage. Yeah. But regardless, he was a free man. And a couple of weeks later, in July 2001, Andrew moved once again, but this time with his three boys, to live 175 miles away in St. Leonard's, Dorset. At this point, he moved in with his mum and dad as he needed help to raise his three young children. Andrew would stay living with his parents for the next eight years, at which point they then purchased a bungalow and moved out so Andrew could move his new wife, also called Debbie, into the family home and continue building his new life, leaving his old one very much behind him. There you go. It was around the time of this move that he also sold the family business. Now, unbeknown to him, a letter was found by the new owners from the 15-year-old child. It had been addressed to My Sexy Andy, and it confirmed Debbie's suspicions were correct. Fast forward 17 years and it's March 2018. Debbie's case was picked up by a team of cold case detectives from the Kent and Essex Serious Crime Board. The cold case team started to piece together the evidence and it painted a haunting picture. So I'm just going to summarise briefly what we know and what we've talked about. We've got the changes that Andrew made to the joint bank account in the days after his wife's disappearance. Now, the police in 2018 found out over that time, over the years, that he triggered the changes before she went missing. So while she was removed as co-signatory after she went missing, he'd have had to give the bank a couple of weeks' notice. And all of that started weeks before she went missing. There you go, then. And he'd be... And he's being called Sexy Andy by a 15-year-old. Well, did, yes. Did they I'll not get speak to that in a minute. Did they not speak to the 15-year-old at the time? They did. And again, something that we'll touch on shortly. Okay. Bearing in mind as well, we know that they located the nappy bag with her person keys in, meaning that she hadn't run away at all. Like, she had no means to run away. She didn't have this cash that he said she had, because that was in her purse. And she didn't have the keys that she said he uh, that he said she'd driven the car away in. There were witness statements coming together that confirmed that a Peugeot 309 had been seen reversing from the Griggs's driveway at around 4 a.m. that morning, and and various witnesses had seen the car driving around in the middle of the night at various locations when Andrew claimed that she'd actually left at 11 p.m. Right. 
And what really haunted me about this is if Andrew was reversing that car at 4 a.m. in the morning, because he'd have no reason to lie to the police that Debbie wouldn't have left at 4 a.m. If he was seen reversing that car at 4 a.m., we would presume that at this point she was dead. He'd have had to leave those three boys in the house on their own. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if the next day he was made to phone the police, he would have A, had to kill her, B, had to get rid of her body, but then also had to meticulously clean that car somewhere where people couldn't see him doing it. Mm. And, and a lot of these things, if not all of those things, pretty much impossible to do if you've got three kids with you. Agreed. And it's purported that all of that was done in the middle of the night. And then finally, all the inconsistencies with the story, which were pieced together from police interviews and conversations with friends and family. So obviously after the 17-year period when the case had been cold, the police had come at this with fresh perspective. And as we often see with these kind of cases, they'd mapped everything out. And whilst the CP- whilst the police had originally gone to the CPS in 2001 and said, we think we've got a solid case here, the cold case team were able to layer in some of the stuff that was found since then and really bring the case to life. So the, the much-needed break that came in the case would actually come from both of his victims. So first off, the handwritten love letter from the 15-year-old child, which was found after he sold his shop. It detailed explicitly how the pair had engaged in sexual activities over the course of 18 months, which was entirely illegal given her age. And this proved Andrew's ability to lie to the police and not disclose relevant information, right? Yeah. Um, And then there were Debbie's diary entries. Now, she was encouraged to keep a diary after engaging with that divorce lawyer back in March 1999, if you remember, when he left the family home. Yeah. So extracts from her diary, which had been found in the years following her disappearance, really uncovered the problems with their relationship. So I'm just going to read you a couple of extracts now. Everything we have together is in fact his, and I'm only allowed to enjoy anything that is a joint matrimonial asset by reason of being with him. He does not let me go out by myself. His needs come first. He tells me I am sick and mad in the head. She would also regularly describe him as bombastic and bullying. And then quotes, If things do not go his way, he gets very nasty. In one of her last entries, she also commented on the fact that he'd need her in the stomach, despite knowing she was several weeks pregnant. Wow. And to police, this showed that he had the ability to cause harm to his wife. And also it was a controlling and abusive relationship as well. (laughs) If you were to take away, if you were to read those diary descriptions, not knowing anything about this, someone just gave you independently to read, you'd say it's a stereotypical description of a controlling relationship, an abusive relationship. And let's be honest, in 2001, or even 99 when she went missing, coercive and controlling behaviour wasn't really something that the police knew how to identify and really, well, they probably knew how to identify absolutely, but not something that they could um, 
prosecute for potentially on its own um it was in 2018 now absolutely absolutely by the time the cold case team reviewed it and let's be honest as well this is in the run-up to her disappearance you know it's not it's not like anyone could claim that she had she you know that she had this motive and that she was preparing to run away she was just keeping a diary of her interactions with her husband as she was asked to by a lawyer and it's speaking volumes isn't it it is so all this evidence meant that Kent police could finally charge Andrew Griggs with the murder of his wife, Debbie, 19 years after her disappearance. Now, again, just to say that, I mean, and, and I know that this case, this is when it really caught the UK headlines. Not that it didn't in 99, because um, certainly from a local perspective, it really did. But um, I don't think it hit necessarily like the level that um of of national press that it really did in 2018 um and 19 when he was charged it it was sensational the case wasn't it like um because bearing in mind they hadn't found a body um they just reviewed a cold case and decided yeah now absolutely we have enough evidence to go after this man and he'd been living free for 19 years yeah yeah and it's interesting to see what those people around him, how they reacted. Well, yeah, and we'll go on to touch on that. The case went to trial on the 2nd of October 2019. And just a couple of weeks later, the jury of 12 at Canterbury Crown Court found him guilty of Debbie's murder. On the 30th of October 2019, he was finally sentenced to life in prison for the murder of his first wife and ordered to serve a minimum of 20 years. That's a, That surprises me because... It doesn't, we've been doing this far too long now, but I was thinking there's not enough evidence there to convict. No, absolutely, there was. And um, they called the then, you know, much older um, child victim in the case um, in court. And she gave a witness statement about his character. And uh, she was indeed interviewed by police at the time. She was questioned heavily by Debbie during their relationship, but he had controlled her and said that if she ever said anything, people would hate her. And we will go on uh, in, in the judge's sentencing remarks. They're quite damning about that particular part. But um, she actually screamed out in the middle of court. He's a paedophile and pointed at him. And, you know, this this girl, she had been interviewed as late as 2017 and had still denied, sorry, 2018, and she had still denied their relationship. And then officers brought out that note and said, did you write this note? And she just broke down in that police interview. And she said, you know, he told me he, he like, I've, I've been a shell of myself since the day that, like, you know, what happened to his wife? And she was basically traumatized. And um, she'd not told a single soul in, the, in all those years what had happened to her and it was only by the police showing her the evidence that they'd found in that letter that she was like okay i've got to come clean it's mad isn't it the control he had over her it's crazy how it's crazy how that happened and i guess i explained why some people might take decades to come come out and um admit they've been a victim yeah and we see that so often with with some of these celebrity cases don't we 
where people don't feel brave enough because they just don't think they they'll have a voice and and not it doesn't even have to be a celebrity case you know it can just be um someone on the street you know that that they've been a victim of um of abuse and uh you know they're just paranoid about the fact that no one might believe them so they'd rather stay quiet and it's heartbreaking yeah in july 2022 andrew griggs's appeal was heard with Michael McGarrion, QC, suggesting that the murder conviction was unsafe, with at least six grounds for appeal. The main one being centred around the fact that Mr Justice Spencer should not have allowed evidence relating to the allegations of Griggs' sexual relationship with a teenage girl to be presented at the trial. He argued that admission of such evidence caused prejudice against Griggs when it came to the jury deliberating the charge of murder. The fact that a man is being unfaithful to his wife does not automatically give grounds that he had a motive to kill her, he would say. That is unfair and unreasonable chain of reasoning. You can see, I'm not saying it's right, but it sounds like a plausible argument to make if you're in a court of appeal, doesn't it? It does, and that's why I've included it, because I'm obviously not willing and wanting to defend this man, but I actually thought, you know, if the, if the, if if there was a, with that being the main reason for you know appealing his conviction, I, th- I think that you know it, it was worth like hearing that. However, the judges dismissed all the arguments put forward and denied Andrew Griggs the opportunity to overturn his conviction. However, commenting on there being any grounds for appeal, Mr. Justice Holroyd said, "We are satisfied there are not. An appeal would be bound to fail." He went on to argue that the evidence relating to the alleged affair was of obvious and unmistakable relevance to the murder charge, as it would provide context to the disintegration of the Griggs's marital relationship. In terms of the evidence being prejudicial to the jury and the judge's direction to that effect, he would say, in our view, it was appropriate and sufficient, and Sir Griggs will be seeing out the remainder of his 20-year sentence behind bars. Or his minimum 20-year sentence, sorry. Sounds like I thought that sounded plausible as an appeal, but that response sounds equally as plausible, doesn't it? Absolutely. And how satisfying for her family, for Debbie's family to hear that, that like it would be bad enough to know that he was appealing his conviction, but for a judge just to be so adamant and firm on those grounds is, yeah, amazing. Yeah. But the story doesn't end here. Just three months after that appeal, and nearly two years to the day of his conviction for murdering his wife, Kent Police received a tip-off from an anonymous source on the 5th of October 2022, suggesting Debbie's remains may be buried in the garden of Andrew Briggs's home in St Leonard's in Dorset, Hampshire. An anonymous source. That means someone all these years knew about it. Yes. Who was it? I wonder who it was. Beauty of anonymous sources. Well, I know, but I just mean like, if you're willing to keep that secret all these years and then you're willing to keep it secret while he's in trial and during the appeal, then to suddenly come out, or maybe it's because he lost his appeal, it's like, we can't be afraid of him anymore. Well, do you know what, right? Let's Let's have a look at this now, right? I wonder, and I was actually talking to Lee about this when I was uh, writing the script the other day, I wonder when somebody saw his name hit the headlines, either at the point he was convicted or at the point of his appeal, 
whether someone went, oh, do you know what? I did a garden patio for that guy and he was proper sketchy. <laughs> you know, it could be something as simple as that. Or maybe his wife has gone, his 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 latest Debbie Griggs has gone, do you know, there was a period of time when he was very, like, nervy about people being out in the garden or, you know, he went MIA for for some time. Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but all of these thoughts started flooding in my head where I was like, it just takes one person to have a suspicion to set off a chain of events. I guess so. And it, but he'd have had to move that body at some point after he moved. Mm. Well, we'll, it, we will uh, touch on that in a, in a moment. Maybe it was his parents because his parents lived in the house or in the bungalow, didn't they, mm. at the time? But, but I, I mean, I would argue that if you knew that about your son, would you have let him carry on raising your grandchildren and remarrying like... Well, hey, two things, eh? It depends on may, maybe they weren't bothered because he might have lied to them about Debbie or, and after all they appear and that, they realise that he was lying about all that stuff or he may have just transferred his controlling behaviour to them and if they're already older by now, they could be pure fear, couldn't they? Could be. No, you're is absolutely it, is, right. And and being safe in the knowledge that he's behind bars, they've left it a couple of years and then gone, do you know what? It's time to put her well, to body put her to rest. Well, yeah, because after the he lost his appeal, that's it. He's in prison. Yeah. And yeah. and um what when did he moved in like what do you say, eight years after? He was there for eight years with his parents before they moved oh, out. Okay, sorry. When did he actually move into that? Two thousand one. Also, oh, two years afterwards. So, yeah, it would. Yeah. It, it's entirely and, possible. And, and so, yeah, like, how, we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. But okay. Just let, let's get through yeah, the last sorry. little bit and then and then we'll uh, we'll un, unpin that comment that you made in the, at the start of the episode. During an excavation at the property, the police discovered human remains, including teeth fragments, which would be confirmed to be that of Debbie Griggs and her unborn 18-week-old child on the 14th of October 2022. Whilst further tests were carried out to establish her cause of death, and inquiries were also made into establishing how her remains came to be at the property 175 miles away from where she was killed, both were inconclusive due to the levels of decomposition which had taken place. Andrew Griggs will likely take this information to his grave, as I don't see him being successful with his parole bids at the age of 80. That is, unless he decides to confess what really happened on the evening of the 5th of May 1999, and two years later, when he relocated her body. And this is, like, where we can, like, have a look into it, because in my head, like, where did he store it for two years? Yep, in in the freezer at his his shop, right? Probably, yeah. And then, like, why would that would that not have been checked by the police? Surely that was like would have been one of the key places for them to check. So, how on earth is he as as a body lay in a freezer undetected? But then, right? So he's he's located, he's put a body somewhere. He's then been lucky enough to relocate it two years later. Yeah, and I know at this point he's considered a free man, but still, you're traveling 175 miles with a 
defrosting potentially decomposing body like how on earth has he been able to then bury it again without being detected that's like two opportunities as for me like i don't know that the man's got skills i get you he i'm thinking he owned a freezer business so he could have literally just rented anywhere couldn't he a lock up somewhere and put a freeze yeah. in there he had enough freezers put a freeze in there keep the body frozen uh, 175 miles educate yes. me because educate me because i'm not a driver how long does that take to drive um so if you're traveling at an average speed of 60 miles an hour it's about three hours so not accounted for traffic debbie without sounding horrible here debbie wouldn't have defrosted in that time so um okay i appreciate that so, so no, he could have got he could have got pulled over or like no he know. could have done but what i mean in, she would have defrosted in that time and did not envisage just having this conversation today, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. But that leads me to thinking that maybe his parents did know because he would have had to bury it, bury Debbie in the dark. You'd assume that, wouldn't you? Bury Debbie in the dark or pre dig the hole and fill it in in the dark. You're not gonna do that in the daytime, are you? As a high risk strategy yeah. telling your parents that they're but how else would you explain digging a big hole in a garden? Oh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. Oh, do you remember that case? Um, do you remember that case that we covered, where the guy was end up moving to Australia? Yeah, he, he killed his wife, and he kept her in a freezer. So it could have been, it could have been a case where he didn't bury her straight away. He took her with the freezer and then plugged it in in the shed or something. And after his, after his parents moved out, then buried her. Mm, yeah. I mean, anyway. we'll never know, right? There's no, so no. many there's so many things that may have happened. But I, I truly believe he won't be given parole without admitting, like, what happened um, to her. But he was willing to never tell anyone that she was buried in his back garden so what's yeah. to say he will ever want to be honest about how she came to be there yeah true as is the case with so many episodes we write and record my heart really goes out to the children and families that have been impacted by this horrible case and what i mean by that is following his conviction jeremy jake and luke griggs sons of debbie and andrew took to facebook in early 2020 and launched their appeal to find our mum. They were pleading for the public to provide information which might help locate her. The boys wrote on their social media site, this page has been launched for the sole purpose of finding our mum, Debbie Elizabeth Griggs, in brackets Cameron, who we believe was not murdered by her father, but is still alive. It has not been set up to cause upset or distress. Every human on this planet is permitted to have an opinion. That is their right. We respect that right. All we ask is that you, in return, respect ours. We are interested in finding our mum. Please like and share so that we can reach as many people as possible in the hope of finding our mum. Thank you. Oh, that's heartbreaking because they were still hanging on to the thought that she was still alive, like 20, yeah. 21 years later. So they would have been, the, all been adults by then, wouldn't they? And that she had abandoned them. Yeah, but they still um, wanted to find her. 
Yeah, and the boys were in denial that their father had anything to do with her disappearance. They were, like you say, adamant that she was alive and well. And, like, the first place my head went when I read about this was the horror that they must have experienced when the remains were discovered two years later in the home that they spent the majority of their time in. And there were so many reports from newspapers obviously sensationalising the fact that you know, they'd played in that garden for years over the grave of their mother, and it's just awful, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it's horrible to think about. So to end today's episode, I've taken some excerpts from the sentencing remarks that Mr Justice Robin Spencer um, made, which the court heard back on the 30th of October 2019. And I'm just wanting to remind you and our listeners that this is nearly three years prior to her remains being discovered. You have maintained a lying account ever since Debbie went missing, to the enormous distress of her family. They have always known that Debbie would never have left her children in this way. It is huge sadness that Debbie's mother did not live to see you brought to justice for the murder of her daughter. She died in January 2019, just a few weeks before the correct decision was finally and belatedly made to charge you with Debbie's murder. Her father, her brothers and her sister have shown great dignity and restraint throughout the trial. It was her mother who would constantly strive to keep Debbie's name alive, trying each year on the anniversary of her disappearance to persuade the local media to publish her picture and make a fresh appeal for information about her. That's just giving me shivers, like... Yeah. yeah. It's just horrible, isn't it? What he's put everyone through for 18 years. And then the fact that Debbie's mum didn't even get to see justice being brought. I always find that quite sad when you hear about a mum or a dad or a relative or partner never finding, never mm. never getting like peace that they knew what happened. Absolutely. And about his affair with the underage child, Mr Justice Spencer went on to add, from the late summer of 98 through to the spring of 1999, you were in a full sexual relationship with that young girl, as she described to the jury in evidence. He told Griggs, you groomed her. You took advantage of her emotional vulnerability. You were obsessed by her. You were seeing her five days a week. It was cruel and humiliating for your wife to see you flirting openly with this girl under her very nose. You and the girl each denied that there was any sexual relationship when Debbie challenged you both. The girl was only afraid to speak out because you told her that if she did, everyone would hate her. And just to explain, criminal charges were never brought to Andrew on the grooming and underage relationship that he had with this child because at the time the law stated that it had to be within 12 months of the relationship occurring or of the incident occurring that you could be charged and questioned about it and um, obviously by the time they found the note and with all with everything else that went on that period of time had well beyond past so he could never be charged with that crime which to me is just an added insult to this awful human being, you know, getting away yet again with something that has undoubtedly changed the course of that 
person's life you know the the suffering and pain that she must feel from what she was involved in and how she was groomed i can't Uh, comprehend a couple of things here then firstly i never knew that and it makes me wonder about the historical abuse trials that happen now how do they happen if if it had to be yeah but but she denied don't forget she denied it was only in 2018 that she um also if she hadn't ever spoken to them then he could have been oh i get you okay yeah yeah because she denied it so vehemently up to that point um yeah it was really difficult to um, uh, to do to do anything about it. But secondly, um, I mean, let's be brutally honest here. You might not like me saying this, Rachel, but if he would have been tried at the same time, it wouldn't have impacted his sentencing at all. Um, no, and, not. And, and even if he would have been given years for it, I mean, a lot of the time you see when it's a murder, the judge doesn't even sentence on other crimes uh, some, and if they do, it's always to run at the same time. Concurrently, uh, yeah. yeah, concurrently. So it makes it makes me think that even if they had of, I mean, I don't think they would have even prosecuted anyway. If they could have done, they might have just laid mm-hmm. it on file. Might have left it on file in case they ever miraculously does get out, so they can just arrest him and charge him for it. But, but yeah, I know it doesn't make it right, but I don't think it make a difference. No. In sentencing Andrew Griggs to life imprisonment, Mr Justice Spencer told him, you have shown no remorse whatsoever. True remorse would have been shown only by a guilty plea and by disclosure of where you concealed the body. So this has been Season 4, Episode 7, titled Escaping Justice. So Andrew, what do you think of that case? Yeah, it's a bit of a roller coaster, wasn't it? And I'm, glad I mean, got, I'm glad justice was done in the end. It'd be nice yeah. if justice would have happened a lot sooner, but at least it happened. I do wonder, I did find myself wondering whether he spent 19 years looking over his shoulder, worried by the prospect of being caught. I think yes and no. I, I don't think a person like that would spend every waking moment where he's going to get caught, but I do think there probably is moments when he was thinking, oh, no, like, am I going to get caught, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And so for one last time, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you all to relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. The man you once loved dearly, committed to spending the rest of your life with, turns out to be someone entirely different. But that's okay, because you can always get a divorce, can't you? Yeah, good question. Thanks, everyone. And until next week, it's goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Mm-hmm.